Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1962 Jean-Luc Godard film, My Life to Live. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, I um, this is our third Godard film, and I'm I'm falling I'm I've fallen in love with him. Like I I really each one of these just gets me excited in lots and lots of ways. And this one from the very jump, we'll talk about the way this movie opens, but uh, he definitely delivers right away. Uh, before we get to that, though, what is your history with this film? Is this something that you had uh, encountered earlier? Or is this something you came to more recently? Yeah, I saw it um, several years ago. I did a, a bunch of Godard films to kind of catch up, and I I did this one among those. So it was a film I f- f- was familiar with maybe four or five years ago. Hadn't been back to it recently, so uh, kind of renewing my acquaintance with it. But it was one that I've, I've always liked from the beginning. So I, I, as I said, this is the third one we've watched. I didn't realize how closely bunched together these films are so he makes breathless in 1960 he makes a film in 1961 in 1962 he makes this movie in 63 he makes three movies so in the course of four years he makes six films um so this is a a deeply uh prolific period for uh for godard and this fits in between uh breathless and contempt you know in that in that window of time yeah, and, and uh, as, as I as I think is the case, he'd only took him about four weeks to shoot the film. So part of the reason why he he made so many films so quickly is he shot quickly, and um, he semi improvised scripts. Um, he sort of had a script, but he sort of changed it as he went along. So he had you know very much that kind of well that classic new wave kind of shoot from the hip sort of approach to things. Yeah, at the same time, uh, we're going to talk about formal stuff in this movie, yeah. like. There's some very intricate stuff that happens in this movie. You know, I kept thinking like, man, how long? It's interesting to think that this was done quickly because you watch some of these scenes and you think it's crazy if you go back. It, it, sort of like we talked about with um, Cleo from five to seven. There are some really long takes in this movie. They don't jump out at you and slap you in the face as this is a big, long one. But if you go back and look to where a take started and where it ended and you think, it's like there's three scenes happened and we haven't had a cut yet, you know, and like that takes a lot of organization, you know, or a lot of brilliance to think, how are we going to move from one thing to another back to another all in one set of camera movements? Um, so so that that's kind of amazing to think that these are done fast and cheap at the same time. Well, you know, I mean, Godard had kind of a dual preparation as a filmmaker. On the one hand, he had his career as a film critic. Um, and, you know, kind of Tarantino-like just watching and absorbing so many, so many films, which a lot of people say is the best film education. Um, and then he did, you know, he, he did a, a documentary in 1956 for, uh, for Switzerland. And then he did three or four kind of shorts in the late 50s. So he, he actually had a kind of an apprentice period. So by the time he hits Breathless, I think he's got a pretty good idea of, of what he wants to do. But so much of, I mean, I, I've got a list of uh, about a half a dozen or more uh, directors or films that I think he's kind of quoting or he's indebted to in, in My Life to Live. So I think there's a lot of that going on here. He's just absorbed so much film history and seen so many films. And he's just got one of those memories, those one of those imaginations that kind of kind of see those things before uh, easily. Yeah. So and, and you wanted to to pair this movie with Cleo from five to seven, which comes out uh, within a, a few months before yeah. this movie. So Godard is in that movie yep. and they're making these 
really over in, in a very similar period of time. And it is interesting. We'll get back to thinking about mm-hmm. these two movies in conversation with each other. But I also did not realize that these were coming uh, basically being made almost simultaneously, yeah. which is interesting to think about. So the full title of this movie is uh, My Life to Live, which which can get interpreted lots of ways. It can be mm-hmm. My Life to Live, Her Life to Live, mm-hmm. um, How Do You Live?, <laughs> Uh, if, if, if you want to, uh, from what I heard, you could phrase, yeah. it could be phrased in a number of ways, which interestingly is the name of the new Miyazaki movie, which comes out this year as well as how do you live? Um, so, but, but the complete title also includes a film in 12 tableau. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm asking the right person this because I, that jumped out at me, the choice of the word tableau, um, and part, I was reading about this, trying to figure out, is that just that's the word you would use for scene in French, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems like tableau is a very specific choice of word to not call it a scene or a chapter, but a tableau. So when you hear the word tableau, what jumps out at you? Well, you think of that from the visual arts, right? You think of a tableau as, as a painting. Um, and so I think that's his, that's his deliberate reference. Um, we can talk about what he does in the opening of the film. And then how in the last tableau, you get the voiceover from Edgar Allan Poe's the oval, the oval Portrait, which is in fact a tableau. So there's a sense in which he's announcing that this film is, think about it as a painter approaching a subject is one of the things he wants us to think about. And that opening shot does that kind of right away. It also makes you think about the relationship between yeah. the tableaus as well, because um, if I'm thinking about chapters or scenes, I'm thinking about things necessarily being deeply interconnected. If you're telling me these are 12 paintings or 12 portraits, I would think about, well, they bear a relationship to each other, but um, but there's spaces in between these as well. And in certain, when we move from one to the other, we realize time has passed or an event happens when you think about like the the police interrogation it's so interesting that we jump into that and we're clearly like an event happened and we didn't know you know and we're learning about it only after the fact so um i think i think that's another another piece of this is it's not just here's the next chapter but here's the next thing i want to show you which connects some of these pieces yeah, I mean, so one one of the reasons I, I paired it with Cleo from five to seven is is that's that's a film that's in a chapter is in a chapter, but everything is continuous, and it's actually as we've talked about, kind of a duration of realism. Uh, by adapting the tableau approach, what um, Godard allows himself to do is what you've just been remarking on, Sam, and that is he can create this elliptical structure. So you you really don't have any idea from the beginning of the film to the end of this film. You really have no idea how much time has passed. You you you, you know you don't know if there's days or there's months. Um, I mean the weather stays about the same because the show the shooting schedule, but you really don't know exactly you know how much time has gone by. And then and then he can choose not to show you certain events, even though they're important, like the reason why she gets taken into the police station, because what's important is not the event itself. What's important is how the event is treated and how Nanal looks at it and how she gets interrogated. So it's really kind of a brilliant way to structure the film because what he can say is, I'm just going to show you what I think of the, the highlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can kind of fill in, you can kind of fill in the, the gaps. Right. And, and and there's, I think there's one moment in the movie where we get an indication of time and it's actually helpful because it lets you know, 
just so you know, a lot of time has passed, um, which is early in the, and I only know this because there's a great commentary on yes. Criterion. Um, early in the film, uh, when when uh, Nana, Nana's uh, husband, Paul, comes oh, right. to show her photos, Raul walks Ooh, across yes. the background, and yeah. he mentions later in the movie, mm-hmm. three months ago, I saw, I was there and I saw this thing. So you know, wow, three months have passed. Like, that's one of, that's the one time we get an indication of time. Yes. And it's, in my mind, it was more time than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I realized how much I had missed. And he really only does a montage once. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty, a pretty amazing um, tableau is the, the, the montage tableau that, which we'll, we'll talk about. Um, <clears throat> so with this film that I feel like, I feel like this is how I started our contempt podcast or our contempt episode as well, which is like, I I'm torn. It's like, do I want to talk about form or content? Um, <laughs> and, and it's kind of unfair because he, he doesn't separate those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 the formal things he's doing attached to the content of what those are happening. But my, my fear is if we don't talk about form, we won't talk about it. Um, so I want to start by talking about form and then we can come back to, to content and then even content you can talk about in multiple ways here. Um, Cause I got really excited uh, when I saw the opening of this film. So um, as you mentioned, the, the film opens with three portraits i guess of the actress anna karina who who plays nana uh in this uh in this movie we see the first is her facing to her right kind of in shadows we get kind of a profile picture then we get a straight on um i was gonna say they're they're not photos they're they're uh video portraits right Mm -hmm. of her face straight on and then we get one of her looking to the left right um and, uh, you know, there's there's different ways you can you can think about this. I mean, you can think like we're seeing multiple perspectives on a person. So maybe this film is going to show us different aspects of the life of her um, in the commentary. Uh, uh, Aiden Martin mentioned it's also it looks like a mug shot, right? You're getting the like, look forward, look to the left, look to the right. Um, I also just thought about movies that are about faces. So, I mean, I. This movie comes later, but I thought about Persona and I'm really proud of myself from that opening. I thought, oh, Passion of Joan of Arc. <laughs> and when that came back, I was like, I finally, I finally like was ahead of something watching a movie, but I definitely thought about that. And I was like, this, this has that, there's something about that feel of what Dreyer is doing in there. Um, uh, when, when I saw that, what do you, what do you think about with just that, that opening of those three portraits? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think. It, 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 that's exactly what's going on. What you're saying, Sam, and and there, I think there's, there's, a, there's a number of other ways to think about it. One is, um, you know, it, it it also looks like you know a test shot for a film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks like an actor posing for a director. It's the present, but it's and 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 it and it creates this double. There, there's a double relationship throughout the film between uh, between Anna and. As a as a as an actor, but also Anna as a person, right? This is this is also her husband filming her at the same time, right? So the other thing I think that's happening here is you're getting a you're both getting an, um, a foreshadowing of the Falconetti performance in in Joan of Arc, but you're also getting a foreshadowing of the end of the film with the oval portrait, because this is in fact Godard doing his oval portrait of Anna Karina. And the fact at the end, as most people know, the voiceover reading the Poe story is in fact Godard, 
Um, so I, I, so there's a there's a sense which the film the film is always metafictional. It, it's always about or meta cinematic. It's always about Gadar and Karina as well as about the the, the character that, that 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 she's playing. The other thing I want to point out, and this is also from a really nice extra on the Criterion Channel, David Boardwell has a really interesting conversation about four three ratio uh, that choice that that Gadar made. So because it's a 4-3, the classic Hollywood uh, ratio, uh, it means that um, Karina's face really kind of fills the screen. Uh, and both here and in many other places in the film, you know, you you often don't get the milieu around her. You get a focus on her face, and then you you know there's other people there because you hear you hear the sounds, or maybe you glimpse a window. But it really, the aspect ratio of the film is really the aspect ratio of a portrait. And, and, and so I think that's one of the re many reasons that Kadar chose that particular aspect ratio. The film he did just before this, A Woman as a Woman, also with Karina, that was widescreen and in color. So he'd done widescreen and color before Contempt. So he knew for this film that he wanted black and white and the 4-3 uh, ratio. The other thing I thought about was like Eisenstein and montage, the idea of like, okay, what, what you, you know, like you're getting these three pictures of this face without context yet. So it's like, what do you, what are you supposed to like put right. onto those where later you're going to see that face in context and you're going to put, you could see that same face and she often has kind of a blankish look on her face, but be the context is creating other things, uh, other things in that as well. Now over this, we're getting the credits, but we get two other, I think, important things along with the credits here. First is the dedication. Yes. Um, so, so this is, uh, this is dedicated to B movies, yes. um, which I think definitely attaches to when you think about the plot and subject matter of this mm -hmm. movie. Um, and then we also get this sort of epigraph quote um, at the beginning, uh, lend yourself to others, but give yourself only to yourself mm -hmm. uh, from Montaigne. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's sort of indicating that although this has, you know, B-movie plot and subject matter, this is also going to be a film which is going to ask some questions about life and its meaning and how you live it and what's the proper way to live it. And it also sort of serves as kind of the first piece of advice about that. But at the same time, as the movie goes on, I mean, this movie's full of, in a lot of the tableaus, there's a break where there is something, whether it's a story somebody tells or another, much like with Contempt, another text that's brought in whether it's watching a film or somebody reading a magazine article or talking to a philosopher um where you're getting other sort of takes on life's meaning or advice or things like that um so as the movie goes on you get this sort of collected body of uh, for lack of a better word i'm going to say wisdom and mm -hmm. i think one of the questions that we can get back we can get to as we talk about these things is like do these create a coherent worldview? Do they create contradictory worldviews? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, I think it's really interesting. I, uh, it's what I, one of the things I loved about this movie is I kept thinking about like, what questions do those, does this quote raise? What questions do some of these other things raise that when I get to the end, I'm forced to think about? Well, I think it's, I, I think it certainly creates a thematic tension between the theme of freedom and the theme of constraint. And I, I think the Montaigne quote suggests that as well. That is, you know, um, can, can, can you give yourself to yourself? You know, is it possible to kind of say, 
You know, it, is it possible to say it's my life to live? Is it is it really your life to live? I think that's sort of a question that the film is, is posing. And, you know, we have kind of Nana at one point expressing a kind of existentialist approach. You know, I have freedom. I raise my hand. I do this. I do that. Uh, and Godard was very much influenced by Sartre and, and existentialism. And then the conversation with Brice Perrain, who has a kind of a very different view of constraints on, on human uh, choices. So I think that's one of the ways in which the film is, it's its going in so many different directions or it's, it's taking so many different angles on that freedom constraint. Mm -hmm. We can't even relate that to Passion of Joan of Arc mm -hmm. uh, as well, kind of the same sort of uh, thing is being played out. I, I want to say one other thing about the opening before we forget, because it is kind of a formal thing. And that is the, uh, the music is uh, Michel Legrand who scored all kinds of new wave films. He had scored Cleo from five to seven. And <laughs> Godard, Godard asked uh, Legrand for a theme and then 11 variations for each of the different tableaus. And he then didn't use any of the variations. <laughs> he used only the one the one theme, which I think was actually a brilliant choice. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, I, I think you you come back to that music again, again and again, and, and, and it, the music creates a certain feeling that is in a kind of interesting tension with, with the action, right? There's a kind of romantic uh, uh, lyrical quality to the music, and then it's set against this kind of um, brutal world that Nana lives, lives in. So I think that's another uh, ele formal element of the film that's used very um, uh, with, with, a, with a lot of uh, discipline uh, as Godard moves through each tableau. Yeah, and I'll say I, I think I think the way he uses both music and sound, music is used very sparingly until it's not. There's a couple moments where it's oh, yeah. like we have a I mean, we have a full on dance number in the middle oh, of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but also sound in this movie. I mean, there, there's a lot of when you're in a cafe, mm -hmm. if you're paying attention, there is so much ambient sound that's that's very. I think it's. I mean, I think it's recorded in the moment, I think, is how he did that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it, the, the movie sounds great in terms of that. So one, one, one last thing about the quote before we move into the actual movie. Um, you mentioned, like, you know, is it possible to actually give yourself to yourself? I think the other question to think about is, um, is it possible to lend yourself to mm -hmm. others without giving yourself away? Mm -hmm. I think is the is the other question that that asks. OK, so then we get to the first tableau and we get this is where it opens really with a bang because you get a quite long conversation and you're staring at the back of Anna Karina's head. <laughs> so, so you, I mean, it starts by you're looking at her face. She's this beautiful actress. You're looking at her face and instead you're seeing this conversation and it's the back of her head. And then eventually it cuts over to who she's talking to, who we learn is her husband, Paul. And we just see the back of his head. And I just was like, this is Godard right here. It's like, let's ask questions about what a, what a scene is supposed to be or has to be. Um, and I just kept, I was so excited by how long it went on. I kept thinking like, don't, don't cut to their faces. Don't cut to their faces. Uh, and I just, I was so formally excited watching that, even though it's strange to look at. It's like, this is great. This reminds me of things he did in contempt too, where he's like, why do the credits have to be on screen? Why can't they be, why can't they be something you hear? Why do we have to see their faces? Well, I mean, I think there's several reasons why we see the back of their heads. I think one is that we've seen um, Anna Karina from three angles and we haven't seen her from the back. Mm -hmm. So so in a sense, this completes that that opening shot. Um, and then there's you could argue there's realism. Um, if if I were sitting in the cafe 
uh, and they were at the bar, that's how I would see them. If I were trying to eavesdrop on them, that's exactly how it would look. So that seems, so, so I mean, one of the ironies to me, not ironies, one of the paradoxes about, about Nadar is that he's both highly stylized and he does things that draw attention to the camera and to what he's doing, but at the same time, he's being realistic. So he's kind of doing both at the same time. So sometimes these things are called uh, Godard's provocations, uh, right? He's provoking the audience because you're saying, this is frustrating. I want to see their faces. I want to see, I, I want to see their mouths. They move. But at the same time, you're saying, no, this, this is the way it is. Um, and, and one of the themes in this, or one of the recurring elements in the film is um, he keeps trying out different ways to film conversations. Right, there's all kinds of conversations, and he does them from different angles. You get shot, counter shot. You get both people in the picture. Um, you get face, you know, get head a full on of head, of shots. You get so shots from the side. You get one person talking, and you don't see the person they're talking to, or you get one person listening, and you don't see the person who's talking. Which I think some of which definitely influenced Bergman. Um, anyway, so I, I just love this. You could just think about this film just as a variation on how do you film two people talking. You could just think about it like that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So in the commentary, um, uh, he quotes uh, another critic, Victor Perkins, who he says is unkindly saying this about the film, but it's actually probably a uh, uh, Goddard probably read this as a compliment, which is uh, that the film is a series of propositions on how to film a conversation. And mm -hmm. and so I I went through I. I rewatched the film after listening to the commentary and I started to just keep track of like how many different ways. So I, I want to talk about some of them because I think they're formally really interesting. And I think uh, the intersection of form and content with some of them is really mm. interesting uh, as well. And it reminds me of some stuff we see later in contempt where he's, mm -hmm. when he famously has the, you know, the middle chunk of that movie is the the conversation between the married couple and like yeah. the different ways that that he does that um do you have a do you have a particular uh a version of a conversation that uh that interests you that that you want to talk about yeah um I don't know. I've got I've got nine here, you know okay. so I'm, I'm, I'm trying I have to 12 so we're good <laughs> okay okay yeah so um I, I guess since I've already mentioned I, I guess the conversation with Bruce on the uh, the philosopher um, I, I, I like that one for a couple of reasons. One is um, it begins as a possible encounter between a prostitute and a customer. You know, she she kind of propositioning him. And then it turns into um, kind of the, they each kind of share a monologue. But I just I just love the way. And, and it's another one of those where the milieu is created by the sound. Right, you you know the kind of space they're in because you can hear what's going on in the background, but you never see anything beyond their faces. But Bree Brown has such an interesting face, and and he tells such interesting stories. I just I just love that conversation because um, you kind of sense that you know she she becomes his pupil for 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 a few minutes, and as I said earlier, this conversation is a kind of a counterpoint to her to her existentialism. And 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 she's also asking she's asking questions that um, you you could argue almost questions that an actress would, would would ask and 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 it kind of takes me back to the initial conversation with her husband where she says that line three times right and she says I'm trying to figure out how I want to say it and mm -hmm. then she has this conversation with Bruce Pratt about language 
And what's the relationship between language and ideas? What's the relationship between language and our and our 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 freedom? So I just think I think to me that conversation is particularly interesting, not only formally but also because it's got so many of the the themes of the film are kind of playing out there. I also love how that one starts. She comes in and sits in a booth, facing uh, to on looking at the screen, facing to the left, and he's clearly off to the right. So she sort of turns and realizes he's there and they strike up and then she comes around um so like even spatially kind of how that goes and that's the most it's the one time he does something really kind of like shot reverse shot a little bit more where you know um where it 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 feels like the more traditional way you would see a conversation but Mm. because it's so late in the movie it actually seems inventive to do that too (laughs) um i'll I'll, I'll to throw one out i'll I'll go with uh in tableau number two Mm -hmm. in the record store oh yes uh, because it's it's one shot and one of the things i was reading about this is they shot this on a not on the kind of lightweight cameras that they use for breathless and things like that so he's not he's doing a lot more where they they have to really do tracking and panning, um, so he has limited motion. But it's amazing how much motion he gets as it kind of moves along with her. And what I love about it is um, towards the end. So she's having a conversation with the guy trying to buy records and talking to other people in the store, and then she starts to talk to one of her coworkers who's talking about this magazine article, and she starts to read it. And as she reads it, it's like the camera gets interested in something else and it drifts away, and you're listening. In the say, so it's not a point of view shot, but it feels like almost like she takes over the point of view of the camera because mm-hmm. you're somehow it connects with her eyes, which I assume are like not that interested in what this person's saying, and it drifts out into the street. And I think that's such a I, I love the way that that ends, and it's it's so exciting because out there, kind of anything can happen, and in the store, you know, they're if we're talking about freedom and parameter and like restrictions, there's more restrictions in the store than the street where anything can happen. So I love the way that that has this like structured movement on a track, but it sort of floats out, out the window at the end. Yeah. And, and windows are important in a lot of these conversations. Um, uh, you know, the first time that she, uh, the first time that she connects with a customer, you know, there's an there's an open window, and then she draws the curtains across it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the window behind her when she's talking to the policeman, and it's, she's kind of half it's half obscured in the dark. And then that conversation with Raúl, which is another back of the head conversation, where the back of his head kind of obscures her face. She's in front of a false window. She's in front of that big uh, that big panorama of the street, and it's actually not a window at all. So there's a sense in which the window has become a way of both inviting, but also closing off uh, her, her freedom at the same time. Um, another, uh, I want to, I will just, I want to stick with that. The one you were just talking about, because it's, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen something like that where it start. It's actually two conversations. It starts with her writing a letter. Oh yeah. And that, so that's another way of thinking about a conversation, right? Or correspondence in a letter is another kind of conversation. And it's almost entirely watching her write now. And because I don't read French, I'm waiting for the subtitles. And the person who subtitled this is brilliant. They don't show it right away. You have to watch her. And eventually it'll show what she, when she finishes writing a sentence, it'll show it. And you're watching her for too long. You're watching her write. And I love it. I think that's kind of amazing. Um, And then Raul comes in and it's, the only way I can think about it is it's the way an eclipse works, right? That she is at the center of the shot mm-hmm. and his, and when he sits down across from her, it creates 
he eclipses her and then the camera swings um almost like half orbits around so you can see her sometimes and then sometimes she gets eclipsed by him again and then it'll move the other way and you'll see her again and then it'll get like that that's i want to go back and look at that and think about is there anything about the dynamics of that conversation that match up when he is eclipsing her and when he isn't because it's not necessarily when she sometimes she's talking and all you see is the back of his head so i think i want to look at that one a little bit more because that i just have never seen a shot like that and i thought it was really interesting Uh, that the 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 letter writing scene is interesting for at least three reasons for me one is i think it's a uh i think it reflects uh brisson's influence on godard uh, letter, uh, di- uh, diary of the country priest, of course, is always writing his diary. We saw letter writing in, in pickpocket as well. So I think there is a, a Brissanian influence there. There's a kind of, um, there's a kind of terrifying, terrifyingly sinister thing that happens in a very offhanded way. And that is he picks up the letter and sticks it in his pocket mm-hmm. and that's it. I mean, that letter is not going to, that letter is not going to be set. I mean, it's like that. that so it's another one of those ways in which, you know, there, it's an act of freedom on her part, but he just he just quenches it. And then thirdly, the letter itself um, is actually historic, a historical historical document. Right. You know, one of the things that we haven't yet talked about is that, you know, this is a film to a certain degree about prostitution. Right. And um, Godard's source was a uh, was a book called Prostitution Today by a French judge, Marcel Sarcotte. And the letter that Nana writes is, in fact, quoted a quote directly from that book. Oh, so really? At the same time, there is a kind of historical accuracy going going on. There's a kind of almost, you know, Godard was also a big fan of Rossellini uh, and neorealism. So there's a kind of neorealistic element to the film as well that's in that scene. Well, then, well, let's jump from that to another interesting conversation scene, which is. Um, Tableau eight is entirely a, a montage with question and answer. And it's, it's one of the better exposition dumps I've ever seen mm-hmm. where it's because, because I think w- what I was reading about this, it seemed like he was torn between doing a documentary about prostitution and making a movie about it. And so here's where he's just like, let me just tell you exactly how this works. And it's done with Nana asking, asking a question, posing a question and Raul answering it. And as we're, we don't ever see them Mm -hmm. uh, having this conversation, but we're seeing, you know, clearly there's time passing here because she is learning really the tricks of the trade. And as we're listening to this conversation, we're learning the realities of the business, kind of the business aspect of prostitution and how this works and what the expectations are and the the little visual details about the room um, and the street and those types of things, which I think is such an, uh, you know, a, a very sort of different way to um, to think about how you do a conversation. Well, and, and let, let, let me suggest another connection um Sam, and, and maybe this is going a bit too far, but okay, so this is a dialogue. It's a voiceover between the pimp and the prostitute. Um, what's the other point in the film in which we get this? And it's the end, it's the oval portrait, where you have the director, the, the actor, and, and the wife. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what is Godard saying? Is What's the difference, you know, what's the difference between is, is, is acting a sort of act of prostitution is acting a reference to the idea of lending yourself to others but keeping yourself to yourself i mean i i just think it are i mean it's it's hard not to think that there's a kind of a doubling going on there and there's a kind of potential commentary 
back and forth. And just as art can, in the oval portrait, can kill, so too, as we see at the end of the film, her relationship to the pimp ends up killing her as well. And so I think Ghadar is really interested in those kinds of tensions within those relationships. So two other two other conversations um, that are uh, a little bit different. One is uh, Nana watching Passion of Joan of Arc. And I mean, so she's having a dialogue is probably not the right word, but we'll I'll say dialogue with the film. We've seen lots of uh, it's a very common thing in films we've watched of watching people watch films. Uh, Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is in both uh, Cleo from five to seven in this we get this moment where we just cut away from the movie we're watching and we start watching the other film, um, which is like, which is just because I think it only cuts back to her maybe once or twice. in when we're watching the, the, you know, I don't know how many minutes scene of passion of Joan of Arc, but we just get into the text of this other movie. And then we cut back to her, her face watching it and kind of the mirroring between Falconetti and, uh, and Nana or Anna Karina, you know, where you're seeing them both crying, you're seeing them both shot head on like that. Um, and, you know, here's where they're, we're, we're also getting some themes here that I think are asking some big questions because uh, Joan is being asked, you know, uh, do you still believe you, you know, after all of this, do you still believe you were sent by God? And she says, you know, like God knows our purpose. We, we don't know it till we reach the end of our path. And he says, you know, what will be your, what will be, will this be your victory? And she says, my martyrdom will be my victory and my death will be my deliverance. Um, which is interesting when you think about how this movie ends and the questions that that raises about, uh, about that. So I think that's another interesting conversation. And then I'll just throw one more out, uh, which is, I think the the whole dance sequence at dance as conversation, flirtation, seduction, conversation, but one of the great moments in that dance is it's it, there's three takes in that dance. There's, the very long beginning, and then it cuts to her POV, and we see her looking at yeah. uh, Raul and, and and Luigi, and they look at her with this kind of disdain, mm-hmm. and then it cuts back to her again, um, and and you know like, and we don't really see the result of that other than a few tableaus later, we see the young man and her together, and we realize well. There actually, there, there was more that happened. That's another one of those ellipses, right? That there was more clearly that happened there that we didn't see. But, I, but that's a, that's a really fantastic scene, I think. Well, and, and also not to belabor the point about the scene with the young man, the young man in the oval portrait, because I just, I just have to, I just love that scene. But it's interesting that Gadar, that that is also a silent movie scene before the voiceover starts. Uh, and so right away, it connects with the Joan of Arc. Uh, and the other thing, I hadn't even realized this or thought about this till it was pointed out in the commentary. Godard switches from intertitles in Joan of Arc to subtitles, uh, in part to kind of speed it up a little bit. But it then means that it looks very much like the last scene where you get the, the blonde young man and Nana talking with subtitles. So it's like, it's so, you know, what you could call the film the martyrdom of, of Nana, right? Um, and and the 12 tableaus you could argue are like almost like stations of the cross yeah absolutely so so we just because of time i want to move away from formal stuff there's so much more we could talk about but along with this as we said we get these like we get both the plot the kind of narrative of the story but then we also get these stories within or these other texts or sources and we've talked about some of them some we haven't talked about uh 
So we get the the quote at the beginning. Then in the first tableau, we get her talking with her husband, Paul. And he starts telling this story about uh, oh. an essay that his father must be a teacher, an essay that a child in his class wrote mm-hmm. about a bird mm-hmm. and about how if you take away birds have insides and outsides. And if you take away the, the outside, they're still the inside. And then if you take away the inside, they're still the soul. And it's like, and that's just a really interesting question to think about because you think about, well, Nana has an outside and she has an inside, mm-hmm. you know, we're thinking about the self and it's like, is there something besides those things in her? And, 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 um, and, and, and what a, what a cool way to introduce that idea, I think is through, through a child's essay. <laughs> Yeah, and it, and it's 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 so typical of, of Godard in that you know it's it it seems like a throwaway until you stop and really think about it, and it's just this this very brief moment. But you're right; it it just keeps resonating, and it's one of it's one of several kind of texts or other ways in which people tell stories, or you get the excerpts from the book or the excerpts from Poe. I mean, there's always these other kind of um, uh, texts. That are in some kind of relationship with with Nana. Well, and yeah, and then when, when she's in the bookstore, the magazine article is all yes. about the tension between logic and emotion, which gets echoed back in the conversation with the philosopher when she's, you know, talking about love, and he's like, "Well, you know, what is love?" And we need to think about what you know. He's he's constantly wanting to come back to this, and she's sort of pushing in a different direction. One of the ones that I think is really interesting is, um, Yvette. When she meets with when she meets a vet on the street, mm-hmm. and a vet tells this basically tells the story of the dissolution of her marriage and how she got into prostitution, and how much the story of Yvette's husband leaving mm-hmm. is kind of what Nana wants because <laughs> it ends with him like appearing all of a sudden in American movies, and it's like well that's part of like he was seeking some kind of freedom beyond what he had. Mm-hmm. And that's really why she, at the very beginning of this, I mean, she leaves her husband and her child in search of some, of something different of some kind of freedom. Her dream is to be in the movies and things like that. So I found it really interesting that while that story is a story about her becoming a prostitute, which is the path that Nana is on. It's also the, the story of her aspirations in the other character in that story. It all okay. It all here, here's maybe a weird connection, uh, Sam, but it also makes me think about Mulholland Drive because this is the story that Anna Karina could have played out. Mm. She, she came from Denmark to Paris at the age of seventeen to try to make her way in the in, in the world, and she became incredibly successful. She's only twenty two when she makes this film with with Godard. Um, but there's a sense in which she's playing the character that. She could have become. She could. She could have come to Paris and failed. So it's it's so it's the same split you get in Mulholland Drive, uh, where you know you could be successful or you could be it could be a disaster. And so there's a way in which she's kind of playing out the life she actually didn't end up living. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I also want to mention this is around the theme of becoming an actor that there are at least three movie posters. Or references to movies in the background that are, that are that are interesting to me. One is at one point she's standing in front of a poster for Spartacus. Oh, so, I didn't see that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so kind of the the, the the quintessential assertion of individual freedom that gets crushed. Uh, then this this one's hard to catch because it's sort of in the corner. But there's a there's a poster for Paul Newman in The Hustler. I saw that one. Uh, and then of course this is just more because it's an homage to his friend. Uh, but you know you go by a marquee with Truffaut's Jules and Jim 
uh, playing. So I, I just, it's always interesting to me what Godard puts in the background and how it comments on the, on the action. And now one of the things that's interesting is when we're thinking about people kind of delivering stories or philosophies or things like this, it's really interesting that Nana herself has a moment where she delivers a lot. Like, cause, cause you would think, well, this is a story about people, her taking in what other people are saying, but she also, I mean, coming out of Yvette's story, she has this pretty long kind of monologue about, um, uh, we're responsible for our actions. And this is where she talks about, if I turn my head, I am responsible. If I raise my hand, I am responsible. If I'm unhappy, I am responsible. And then she goes on to talk about, uh, you know, you only have to take an interest in things to see their beauty. Um, what do you make of that speech? Well, I think certainly, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think it, the idea here is, how much agency does she actually have? Because when when we watch her, I mean, to me, the, the speech creates a kind of a a kind of a, a of an ironic tension, right? Because in the speech, she's making this claim for freedom, and so it's clear that what what we watch is a kind. At least I see what happens to her as a kind of loss of control, a kind of descent into a kind of bondage she's actually interpreting her life very differently. She actually thinks that she is exercising freedom. So I look, I look at her and I think, oh my gosh, you know, because she can't, for whatever reason, she lacks adequate income. And so she's had to turn to prostitution out of some kind of desperation. She actually sees it, I think, as an exercise of agency. And so she has really no idea that she can't kind of walk out on Raul. Um, and it's interesting that when Raul takes her away at the end, it's the same scene where we had seen her at the beginning of the film trying desperately to get into her apartment because mm -hmm. she lacks money. And, and and what you actually realize is, in a sense, nothing has changed. She's just as trapped at the end as she was at the beginning, but she thinks she's not. So then the question that Godard is kind of raising, I think, is it gets back to this question about the soul. Well, is she free because she doesn't think of herself as captive or is she kidding herself that she's free because look how she ends up dead on the street. So to me, that's to me that that whole speech about her existential um, freedom is, is, is ironic because I don't think she's as free as she thinks she is. Um, so do you think, as you think about this movie as a whole, then we have all these different characters, stories, philosophies, all these things. Does this movie, do you think Godard is trying to raise these questions or answer these questions? Oh, it's Godard. <laughs> He's trying to raise the question. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I, and I think even, even the, the interesting we should say something about the last last scene because first of all, um, the very last scene with with, the, with when she gets shot. First of all, it's it's very it's very much like an Ozu, mm. only shot right because you see the street and the car just sits there, sits there, sits there, and then somebody comes into the frame. But the way this film ends, right? It's like, what do you make of that pan? In other words, you know, there she is at the top of the screen and then and she's in front of, of course, the whatever it is, the uh, uh, the, the cafe of uh, the, the, the the cinema restaurant, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it's called. Right. And then and then the camera pans down. I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I don't I don't know what to say about that. It's like 
that's that's the end. That's her movement in, 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 into the grave, uh, or is it a movement into freedom? I think Gadar is just raising that question for us. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought about um, this morning as I was thinking about her death. I, I thought about you know, is this story the the passion of Nana? Right? Is mm-hmm, this right. is this uh, because that you can think about that as does this replicate the passion of Joan of Arc? But passion is also used. I mean, the, the passion play has you have the Stations of the Cross, the mm-hmm. sort of t- tableaus there as well, which is sort of interesting. Um, and for Joan, she talks about, you know, that her death is her victory. Her martyrdom is her victory and her death is her deliverance. And um, it, it just feels I mean, it feels like her death is meaningless in this, you know, like, yeah, I mean, like it, 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 it's just it's just in the crossfire you know and what's what's really what's really interesting about it is she gets so she's standing there the first guy shoots his gun and says oh i forgot to load you shoot and then he shoots at raul and hits her and then raul running away shoots them and hits her so she gets shot by both and dies and it's like okay is there meaning in her death does the meaning of her life have to be attached to her death or does her meaning come from somewhere else right and of course, you know, on the way there, they go by Hades and Sons. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's such a, I mean, so, so you get a reference to hell, you get a reference to cinema. Um, as you said, she's literally a victim in, in the crossfire. And yeah, so, I mean, it does, it does raise a question, right, about is, is the meaning of a life contained in how the life ends? Or can we attach meaning to, you know, what if we back up and say, well, she had that moment of connection with the blonde young man. Is that somehow wiped out by what actually happens to her afterwards? Or is that still kind of a moment of transcendence that's valuable for, for its own sake? Um, but it's also, you know, it's, it's also another it's also another death. And the, the movement of the camera reminds us that as in the oval portrait, she is she is a an object of view of the artist. And mm-hmm. somehow there's a sense which, you know, is this another example of how art can actually literally kill? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, thinking about that that pan down also feels like like uh, I mean, I almost imagine like the camera dying, like it's yeah, it's yeah. you know, like it is also slumping over. Mm. You know, it is also finished in the same way that she is finished. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like you, yeah, you could or, or or you could say it's a kind of bowing of the head. Yes, right? and, and kind of and kind of honorific, but but I I can't think of a film off the top of my head. I I, I can't think of a film that ends more abruptly. Right. And- no, that was just that we were. I, so so I'll I'll tell you the situation. I watched as our flight was delayed. So my daughter and I watched this in the MSP airport um, <laughs> for the first time, and we got to the end, and I just was like, wait, that was it? Like I, I now, and what's funny about that is like. The other thing we other formal element is the fact that we have these titles for the tableaus that also tell us what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's it's in some ways he's saying like plot, like, don't don't worry, like, I'm going to tell you what 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 happens in each one of these things. Now, he doesn't say that she's going to die, but but it so that's what threw me off is it said like uh, Raul trades Nana or something. So I'm like, oh, okay, something's, you know, something's going to happen here. But like, I didn't expect that part. Um, and and I was pretty shocked, and it took me it took me a second viewing, knowing that that's what was going to happen. That I felt like I could take in some of the other pieces leading up to that, because I just I just didn't know that that's where it was headed. So it also makes me feel, and this may be the B movie part, like like 
it feels like there's another movie happening that we're not watching. And she mm-hmm. is a secondary character in whatever movie Raul is in, <laughs> you know, and it's like, right. and she is collateral damage in that, but she's also the star of her movie, which we're watching. <laughs> I'll make another weird connection. It's almost like Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Exactly. Dead. You know, exactly. I mean, what happens if you make, if you focus on those, you know, what's happening when those people are off stage? So you're right. In a sense, she kind of comes into the B movie once in a while, but then you see what's happening when she's not, uh, when she's not in in, in the B movie. You know? And that's where that's where the elliptical nature of the movie helps too, because you don't you don't know other things. That, it's the same way that the the other abrupt thing that happens is when she first meets Raúl, and there's the shootout outside, and he oh, runs yeah, away, yeah. and you're like, "What was that?" You know. But that's another thing to say. Like, there's a bigger world that she may or may not be attached to at some point, you know? And it's an obvious foreshadowing of what happens to her at the end. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, One other thing I want to say about the two things about the tableaus. One is that I do think that um, they function as a, as another reference to silent film intertitles, Mm -hmm. just the way you get those little, those little summaries. And then the other thing is that in the last tableau, you get those long fade outs in between sections of the tableau, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just between tableaus. So it's really interesting is the last tableau, if you think about it, I mean, it's really amazing the ground that it covers from, you know, from the oval portrait to her death. It's like it's the first time that Godard has kind of mixed those two different elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the B movie part comes comes back in. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other you said this? There was a lot of movie reference things. Yeah. Is there other things you want to mention? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, there's the B, we've already talked about the B movies and you could pick out any number of B movies. But I think I think about directors like Sam Fuller uh, and Robert Aldrich, who, of course, you know, we watched um, Kiss Me Deadly. I've already mentioned Brisson with the letter writing and Rossellini's neorealism, although Rossellini uh, hated this film. Um, he thought it was too much like Antonioni. Hmm. Uh, we haven't done an Antonioni film yet. But um, if there's any director who tests your patience with long, long shots of nothing happening, it's Antonioni. So I've already said that last scene is a little bit like Ozu, but it's also a little bit like Antonioni at the same time. Um, and then obviously we have the, the debt to, uh, to Dreyer. And then um, I suggested that maybe there's an influence on Bergman from, uh, from Godard, but I also think there's an influence from Bergman on Godard um, Bergman, as early as 1953 in Summer with Monica, had his characters looking directly into the camera, not necessarily breaking the fourth wall, but just kind of looking into the camera. So I, I think all those things are kind of are kind of going on uh, with Godard. That's one of the things I just I love about him. He did a he did a long film uh, about 10 years ago called History of Cinema, uh, which I've still not watched, and I I want to see that because I think that that's Godard's got all this, all this cinematic uh, information kind of living in his head. And it's always, it's always cool to see what connections you can make when you watch a Godard film. Well, it's interesting. You talked about looking at the camera. There's something we didn't mention that I, and it's in one of the scenes you talked about the, when she's talking to the philosopher, Mm -hmm. there's a moment where I think he might look at the camera, but definitely she does. Yeah, she does. And it's so interesting because it does, again, it's not fourth wall breaking, but it is sort of, it almost feels like if you were sitting listening to the let's say you were at a table next to their table listening in it's like she's inviting you in or something she's like i'm aware that you're there listening and that's okay like like be part of it like there's something i just never seen that before where a character like 
addresses the camera and they're not looking at something you don't then pan to see what they're looking at but what they're looking at is you and they're they're aware that you're there in but you're not an audience member you're potentially someone sitting in that in that cafe or something it's just really interesting to me all right barrett one 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 final thing i want to say we didn't talk much about at all about anna much about anna karina's life but anna karina's uh name came from coco chanel um her that this this is not her actual name her first name is similar to anna but it's not anna uh and then she has nothing to do with karina but she was doing a a um uh, an a shot for an advertisement and Coco Chanel was there and she said, you're, you know, you can't use your own name. You have to have a really much more interesting name. So she, she dubbed her, she gave her Karina as in a, in a reference to Anna Karenina from Tolstoy. So the other reference I should have said, the other film reference is um, Jean Renoir's second film was Nana based on Emile Zola's novel. And so um, certainly Godard was influenced by that. He may have also been influenced by a couple of other films about kind of loose women. So Otto Preminger's um, uh, Carmen Jones and uh, Max Ophel's Lola Montez. Uh, those are both films that came from the 50s that probably influenced him. So. Hmm. Uh, well, Barrett, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break here. Uh, in the, We wanted to sneak this one in because we wanted to get it close to Cleo. Uh, from five to seven, but we're going to be off now until August 6th. So we have a little bit of time. I definitely have some, some movies I want to watch uh, over the course of the month of July. Um, what do you have for us for our next episode? Well, I'm going to continue this theme and uh, refresh people's memory when we come back to a continue this theme of films by women directors that are on the sight and sound list. Uh, and I'm going to do uh, and a film that I think actually, again, has a thematic connection to both Cleo and my life to live and that is Wanda uh, from 1970 by Barbara Loden, uh, the only film that Barbara Loden directed, um, and uh, an American film from uh, from the 1970. Oh, fantastic! I've never heard of this, so I'm very excited to uh, very excited to to see this film. Barrett, um, thank you so much for recommending this film. I'm I'm all in on Godard at, at this point. Um, if what should be my next Godard movie? What would what would you recommend as a I, I, I think I would say um, back up to the film he made the year before this, A Woman as a Woman. Okay. Uh, and because that, that's that's Karina. That that's his homage to um, Hollywood musicals. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, with uh, Belmondo is in that one as well. So um, I should say that he first offered a part to Karina in Breathless, and she turned it down. So okay. that was his first effort. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, for recommending this film and for having this uh, conversation. Uh, with all of us. Uh, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back on August 6th to talk about Wanda in the video store.